Well, thank you for having me here. I appreciate the invitation and uh, good to see such a good, good crowd here on an early Sunday morning uh, to learn about uh, dinosaurs and why they matter for defending the faith. So first of all, I want to define uh, basically a few things. I mean, first of all, uh, one of the questions you saw up there was, does any scientist believe the Bible? I think I'm one of them. Um, I used to shine lasers on the selenium ring and cage molecule. I looked at the scattered light uh, published in real secular journals. In fact, we have a book called Busting Myths, which is about 30 PhD scientists who believe the Bible. And when you go into the history of science, you find most of the founders of modern science were Bible-believing creationists. Now, I guess by now you know I'm not from this country, right? So, so here is where I come from, a geography lesson for you. Yeah, so, but I moved over here about eight years ago because one reason is we have two granddaughters now living in Florida. Of course, it's much easier to visit when they're 500 miles away by car than 9,000 by plane, okay? And uh, yeah, I'm a chess master, a retired chess master. This is the thing I'm doing blindfold here. So this guy's making the moves I, I'm telling him to make and he's telling me what these guys are doing, okay? So this is at a creation conference um, a number of years ago now. Uh, here's where I played with Barry Spassky. And got a draw with him there. It's a picture there. Um, I'm also ethnically Jewish. My name is the Hebrew word for Frenchman, so I can tell Jewish jokes and French jokes and get away with it, right? Um, now, why a good Jewish boy like me would believe in Jesus or Yeshua? Well, for one reason, he fulfilled many prophecies of um, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, in his first coming. And some of those prophecies have an expiration date on them, so only he could have done it. Now, a lot of my time these days is spent dealing with this man, because you might say he's the patron saint of the religion of the government schools in the West. Now, the ACLU brag about getting rid of religion from the schools. I would disagree. They got rid of Christianity from the schools, but replaced it with a counterfeit religion you could call evolutionary humanism, uh, which says that everything made itself. There's no God who owns us and who has the right to make the rules for us and who loves us, who makes, makes rules for our good. Uh, so instead, a man decides what rules to make, and now apparently there's no God who's made us boys or girls. That seems to be up for grabs now. But and is anyone, if, if kids are not getting answers in the church or the home, where do you think they're going to go? They're going to go with what they think is the scientific fact and regard the Bible as just one of many myths around the world. So it's a very good thing to see this church is having a series on trying to answer the hard questions, encouraging the hard questions and actually providing answers. So it's very encouraging to come to a church like that. Now you may have heard of our video called Fallout where we actually put this into practice. We actually interviewed kids from at universities and <clears throat> asked them, "Are you? did you go to church? And if they, uh, and then, do you still go to church? And the, and the it's almost defining, if you, they're not going to church, it's because they didn't get any answers to the evolutionary indoctrination in their church. And the ones who are still going to church are the ones who actually had some good creation teaching. So it really does make a difference um, what you learn Um and one place you can find out a lot of stuff is our website. And you better take notes about this. You know what websites are like, right? Ours is creation.com, okay? 
and it has about 13,000 articles on it answering, you might say, two basic questions. Is creation true and does it matter, which is what I'm going to try to do. Uh, and the does it matter I'll really be covering in the second talk, especially. And we actually have a free email letter called the Infobytes. And this is actually a very good thing to to subscribe to. There's no cost to it. There's no, uh, we don't spam you. And we also don't sell your address to any third party. We would protect your privacy. So now we're going to pass around these clipboards here. And all you need to do is put your name and your address if you want to sign up to our newsletter. These nice gentlemen are going to pass around those clipboards. So please go. Thanks for that. And just before I go, I just want to mention some of the books we have there. You see, we are an equipping ministry and we know very well you're not going to remember everything I say in these two hours. And also the people who can't make it, how are you going to get to them? That's why we have some books and, uh, to help equip you to go further and to share it with others. And one you might like is the Genesis account. It's a commentary on Genesis 1 to 11 I wrote in 2015. And it goes into why Genesis matters. What does the Hebrew text mean? It's meant to be readable. And people do read it from cover to cover, even though it's almost 800 pages. People do that. And it also talks about how the doctrines of Christianity had their beginnings in the early chapters of Genesis. And I also show how the New Testament authors and how Jesus himself understood Genesis. But surely, if we are Christians, we should have the same view of Genesis as Jesus himself did. And one of the the mottos of our ministry is actually this passage from the Apostle Peter, be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you. See, Christian faith is not a blind faith. There's nothing in the Bible about checking your brain in at the church door. It's not the way it is. We're supposed to have reasons and answers. And Jesus himself, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. Remember? We're supposed to engage our mind, nourish our mind on God's word. So let's now talk about uh, the, the dinosaurs and why this uh, matters a lot. Well, first of all, it's a big mystery because, let's face it, when most people hear about dinosaurs, they think millions of years. Dinosaurs all died out millions, uh, 66 million years after being in the, on the earth for about 170 million years. That's the sort of thing you hear. But is it in fact true, though? In fact, it's not true when you actually realize you can use the Bible to explain dinosaurs. The Bible actually does tell you dinosaur um, history, um, and it also contradicts the world's account of dinosaurs. Now, first of all, let's define what I'm talking about here. Now, it's always good to define your terms properly. Now, dinosaur is a very distinct type of reptile. You notice one thing about the thigh bones, a very distinctive column-like leg posture. Okay, you see how the legs are vertical? We've got this horizontal process that locks into the hip socket, uh, which means the legs can move vertically, you see. Um, Reptiles living today all have their legs sprawling out to the side. The crocodiles and lizards, you look at their legs, they're sprawled out. So you should never call crocodiles and lizards dinosaurs. They are not. They don't fit the definition of dinosaur, and neither do the flying reptiles or the sea reptiles. They're not really, they're not dinosaurs by definition. So if we take the Bible as a history book of the universe, what does it tell us? Well, it tells us a number of things about when dinosaurs existed, okay? Because you have in Genesis 1, you have on day 6 of the creation week, God made the beasts of the earth. So all the land creatures were made on creation week. 
But what else was made on creation week was man. And we see in Genesis 2, it was one of each. Adam and Eve were made on day 6 of creation week. So logically, this means that they must have lived at the same time. They were created on the same day. That's a real shock for people. And one objection you may come up with to is if they were lived at the same time, why don't we find the fossils together? Now, what you should always think of is get behind that question. What's the assumption behind that question? The assumption is if things live together, then they will be fossilized together. But is this assumption correct? I would say not, and here is proof why it's not. See, in the foreground we have this fish called the coelacanth. Now, you may have heard of it because for many years they thought they had died out with the dinosaurs. But, of course, we now know they're living today. Now, in the background there's a whale flipper. Now, whales and coelacanths are never found fossilized together, but we know they live together because they do live together now. So it just goes to show that just because things live together, there's no guarantee they'll be fossilized together. And when you understand the fossil record is not a sequence of age, it's a sequence of burial. And the burial was actually mostly the global flood of Noah's day. So the different things are going to be buried in different times and different places. Now, there's no question that dinosaurs once existed because we find the bones. There's no question these are bones of once living creatures and some of them are enormous. As you see here, an ordinary man does not even come up to the knee of some of these creatures. That's a huge creature, no question. And some of them we've got very complete skeletons of, like this Brachiosaurus here. And this is a word meaning arm lizard because look at the the front leg is a bit longer than the back leg, so it's got this giraffe-like posture here. But it's a very big creature. Here is a, a comparison with some creatures living today. Now, one thing you notice is the whale was bigger than any dinosaur. That's an interesting thing to keep in mind, that no dinosaur was as big as a blue whale. But certainly, as far as land creatures concerned, it's much, much bigger than anything we have today. Here's a giraffe, and look at how big the brachiosaur is. It's enormous. Here's a human for scale. Okay, here is another view of the brachiosaurus skeleton. Here's a man by comparison, right? They're big creatures, now, some interesting things I'm not sure we'll ever know because we don't have the soft parts of this thing. I mean, I'd be fascinated to know how this thing actually works. When you think of a giraffe, you see, uh, there's a big problem. It's so tall, how do you get blood up to the brain? Just think about that. It means the giraffe needs a very powerful heart with very high blood pressure. You see, the blood pressure of a giraffe is, a, is about 300 over 180. You know what the blood pressure numbers mean? Okay, um, 120 over 80 is, is a normal for a human, okay? See, 180 for a human is, is emergency hypertension. You go to the hospital, it's dangerous. You can get a stroke any time, okay? But giraffe, 300, just to get the blood up to the the head. Then there is a thing. What happens when the giraffe bends down? What happens to the blood pressure? It's going to blow his brains out. Well, no, it's got some blood vessels to shunt away the blood pressure. He's got a specially designed net of blood vessels to take that pressure. And then um, you've got pressure bandages on the legs. Basically, the muscles are surrounded by basically a pressure bandage to get the blood up to the heart disease. So interesting designs we know a giraffe has. So what did the brachiosaur had, which is far taller? I mean, estimated blood pressure, maybe 700 
which of course would blow our brains out really quickly. You see, that's the, the point. We, we don't know what actually they, they had, but it's a good idea of something they must have had, but we just don't know enough about. And there are other things uh, they had which are an interesting design. And one you can see in another type of dinosaur, sauropod. The sauropod dinosaur has the long neck and tail. This is a different kind because you see how the hip, the, the hind legs are bigger than the front legs. So this is more horizontal. But it seems that they could probably go up if they wanted to. You see, older models neglected the fact that you have cartilage. You've got discs, you know, between your, your spinal cord. You've got the discs. So you can get a slip disc, you know, what I'm talking about. Because they don't fossilize, so people missed out. There must have been some discs there, which would actually help the, the dinosaur go up if they wanted to. But notice also they had this arch shape of the back. And you think of arch bridges. The arch has been a very strong engineering design. You think of the Roman arches. And you see how this arch bridge, very strong structure, and has cables coming down to hold the actual bridge, you see. And this is what, what we have here. We have the arch of the back and the ribs holding the weight. So, again, very good engineering designs that we do know about. You see, I've got told you things that we don't know. Here's something we can actually work out from what we do have, the bones, the arch shape. And also, an uh, interesting hollowed-out neck bones to save weight. And these here are actually good. What they do is they stop the vibrations. Because you imagine, you know what it's like when sometimes you get a resonant frequency in something long and it resonates, it becomes quite dangerous. This actually is the right length to cancel that out. So it actually dampens this dangerous vibration. So a lot of the designs we do know about. So one question people were always going to ask you is, what was the biggest of all? And I'll give you an answer, which I think is right. See, look at here is a picture of dinosaurs, and this thing here is off the charts. This thing called Amphicelius fragilimus. But is it actually a real dinosaur? Well, that is the question, because you have to ask again. You see these pictures in books, but then you go to, what was this picture based on? And let's have a look at what it was based on. See, here is the black is the reconstructed outline. The white is the bone they found to make that. And here is the bone they found to make that. This is all they found. I mean, if they found just one piece of your spine and tried to work out what you look like, do you think they'd get it right? I think you've got a problem there. We've got no idea what it looked like just from one vertebra. It just makes no sense at all to make this huge extrapolation. Um, we don't know what, how long a tail the, or a leg or the neck was. See, this thing here, the Diplodocus, we've got most of the bones. So fair enough, we can actually work out how big it was because we've got the bones. And here is a human for scale. It gives you an idea. And this may be the longest dinosaur known from a complete skeleton is the Diplodocus. And I think the Brachiosaurus or the Giraffe Titan are the biggest dinosaurs known from an entire skeleton. But when you got these things like Argentinosaurus, we're missing so much of it. So really, how do we know how big the thing was when we're missing so much of it? And it's even worse when you have... Uh, here is the actual bone they found... Oh, but it's even broken. They haven't got the whole bone. They've got a broken bone, and the bone's gone. 
So you can't go back and see, well, let's see what it really looked like. Maybe it was a, a, a typo when it was the report was given. There's too many unknowns with this. When you've got one broken bone, it's not there anymore, and you want to tell me what the dinosaur looked like. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be quite so trusting. Now, the, what's the biggest dinosaur known from a complete skeleton? Probably this thing here called Photolonchosaurus. And it's not a typo. It might look like one, but it's not. And see, we've got a majority of a skeleton here. But we still haven't got legs. We still haven't got tail. But the hip bone is about 10 feet across. This thing here. And you see how the, the ribs flare out like that. So, And we know the neck, you see. So we've got a good idea that this thing would have been about 100 feet long or so and weighed over 50 metric tons. It's, it's a big creature. And this is where we got the majority of the skeleton. Now, here's another candidate called the Dreadnoughtus, but they seem to have downgraded it. But look, we've got a lot of the, the leg, ribs, and tail. And it's interesting from the tail, it's interesting the discoverers said that this had a weaponized tail 30 feet long. You see, because of these bones, you can tell it had very powerful muscles attached to it. So it's a very powerful weapon, this tail, 30 feet long. So you get an idea. We do know some things about this creature. And so bear in mind the weaponized tail, okay? So the question is then, why aren't dinosaurs in the Bible? Well, I'd be surprised if they were because the word didn't exist when the Bible was translated into English first. They said dinosaur is a very new word. So much younger than the, I mean, the King James is not the first English Bible by any means, but it's a very recent word. It's actually, think about this. I mean, some of you guys might be old enough to remember when you had to use slide rules and logbooks instead of calculators, right? But see, the word calculator is a much older word than dinosaur. Even though you think calculator is a modern thing, the word goes back to the 14th century. So dinosaur is a very new word. So, of course, the Bible translators couldn't use that word if it didn't exist. But what they did have is something quite interesting, like in the book of Job. See, that might be the earliest completed book of the Bible, written not too long after the flood, it seems, around the time of Abraham, perhaps. And God is giving Job a creation lesson in these chapters, describing animals we've got no doubt about. These are real animals. We know them today. But then you get to Job 40, what do we see? The strange creature called behemoth. Now, what is a behemoth? See, that's not an English word. It's a Hebrew word. They, they didn't know what it meant, so they left the Hebrew alone and just transliterated it. You see, behemoth is a plural word in the Hebrew. Now, that's interesting. It's describing a single creature, but they use a plural. So what that's saying, behemoth is the singular. It means one beast. Behemoth is plural, means more than one beast. So this is calling it the beast of beasts. That's the impression of behemoth. The plural is the beast of beasts. And one thing you can tell about him, he eats grass, he eats plants. And then this very interesting thing here, he makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The translations all compare the tail of this thing to a cedar. Now when you go to cedar comparisons in the Bible, they use that to refer to something quite majestically big. You see, the cedar was the biggest tree in the Middle East. And here is an example of a cedar log. It's a big tree, okay? I mean, Solomon used cedars from Lebanon to build his temple, right? 
So, but then you see some Bible translators or study Bibles say, well, maybe the behemoth was an elephant. Okay, let's look at an elephant tail and see if it looks like a cedar. <laughs> yeah, okay, like a cedar. Um, maybe a bonsai cedar, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. Now, what about a hippopotamus? That's another candidate. The behemoth was a hippopotamus. Okay, let's see this tail here. Um, yeah, maybe not, okay. So what about this? Here's another idea. That makes a lot of sense. And when we go back to this creature I told you about, this sort of creature with the weaponized tail 30 feet long, I'd say the Bible would call that a tail like a cedar, but not an elephant or a hippo. So it looks like Job was describing a creature like this. But of course, if the Bible uh, translators have been evolutionized and think dinosaurs died out 66 million years ago, then they think, well, Job couldn't possibly have seen a dinosaur. But if you actually accept the biblical time frame, well, then, then he could have seen one. And he's not the only one because we see these carvings here like this one. You seen this one in Cambodia? So what do you think this one looks like? I mean, no creature today has this. But the stegosaur has this sort of uh, distinctive plates on the back like that. Now the uh, discoverer of this uh, named it stegosaurus, because that means roof lizard, because they thought the plates were down on the back. But then later on they realized the plates must have been upright. So this thing had the correct plate arrangement for the stegosaur as well so they clearly saw something like this another thing to think about is they probably look at the, the chinese calendar you're familiar with that with the, the 12 different animals and one of the animals is called the dragon and it's treated as a real animal there's nothing magical about the dragon in the chinese calendar it's just one of the 12 animals they use now it's interesting the chinese word for dragon is long the Chinese word for dinosaur is konglong, you see, which means terrible dragon. You see that even in modern Chinese, konglong means dinosaur. And here is an example of of, a, of what they can't they can't there. And again, we've got so many of these around the world: statues, carvings, paintings, which seem to look like creatures we would now call dinosaurs, but they call them by other names like behemoth or like the dragon. So what? Uh, they called dragons maybe creatures that we call dinosaurs. And there's a lot of documentation about that. There's a book we have uh, called Dire Dragons, a nice coffee table book which goes into so many of these examples from around the world where, where creatures which were called dragons are quite clearly very similar to what we now call a, a type of dinosaur. Okay, then the question then is, uh, what, why do we see their fossils? What could have caused the fossil? Well, the thing is, you've got to think about what does it take to form a fossil? I mean, have you guys ever seen fossil roadkill? Why haven't you? Because it's not going to last very long, is it? 
So to get a fossil of something, you have to bury it to stop the the other creatures from gobbling it up, right? The scavengers, the insects, whatever, decay. So to get any sort of fossil, you need to bury it extremely quickly before it has a chance to be to, to, to disappear. And when you look at something like this, you see how fast this must have happened. These are fighting dinosaurs from Mongolia. You see, whatever buried them must have been so fast that didn't have a chance to escape. So this proves very fast burial. And when you've got very big creatures like dinosaurs, you think whatever buried them must have been massive. And some of the layers they're in are massive across the continent, across different continents. You see, so we're talking about something not just local, but a worldwide thing that caused these dinosaurs to be buried extremely quickly. Another thing is that the long ones seem to have this very distinctive pose here, the dead dinosaur pose. I mean, why would a dinosaur ever throw its neck backwards like that? It's a very hard thing to do. Well, but see, what they've worked out, though, is that these long neck things must have had some sort of ligament to help hold out the neck like this. I mean, you try holding out a weight like this, it's not easy because they've got the leverage against you, Right. So if they had a ligament to do the, the job, it would save them a lot of muscle exertion, okay? Of course, after death, the muscles no longer work. Uh, you'd expect the thing to flop down. But what if it's immersed in something buoyant, a buoyant liquid? Then the liquid buoyancy would hold up the weight to a large extent, and then the ligament could pull the thing backwards. If the muscles aren't working, the ligament could pull backwards, so this very common dinosaur death pose they cause it is very good evidence that they were underwater when they died. So you think what would have caused a lot of dinosaurs to be underwater when they died? Well that may seem to make a lot of sense, doesn't it? Okay. So this is more proof that these were destroyed by the flood. Now here's another thing to think about. Um dinosaur footprints. And these are from my home state of Australia in uh, of Queensland in Australia. And what they had to do is that they had to remove a top layer. A, these footprints were on a layer of rock, but there's a, a layer of rock covering it. So they had to move tons and tons of this top layer, the overburden, to expose these footprints. And according to evolutionists, this top layer was millions of years after that bottom layer. And that's a problem. If you left a footprint outside, how long would you expect it to last? Millions of years? One year, one week, okay? So the point is, it means these, these footprints must have been buried really quickly and cemented in before they had a chance to decay. And further proof of this is when they removed that top layer, these footprints started to wear away. So they put a protective shed over it, but that didn't, wasn't enough to stop the damage. So now they have this conservation building that controls temperature and humidity, stops running water, running animals, running humans over them. They're very well protected because they are so delicate. And see it from the outside. But see, that's a problem though, isn't it? Because these footprints are so delicate and yet they're supposed to have been exposed for millions of years until the next layer buried them. No, in fact, they must have been buried really, really quickly. So the millions of years are imagining. The fact that we have footprints between layers show there can't have been very much time between them. So the evidence for the flood here is you have 
rapidly form layers which are extremely wide, but also very little time between them. So the flood lay down one thing after another after another. Now here's another weird thing about footprints, which seems to be almost universal. I'll let a paleontologist tell you here. Yeah, their footprints are first, the body parts are later. Yeah, from an old earth perspective, that's really weird because you have millions of years of trackway production, then ultimately the animal that made it. Isn't it interesting that the animals always seem to be millions of years younger than the tracks it made? Unless animals live for millions of years, which I don't think so. And the point is that doesn't make a lot of sense because of the trackways, there's animals. The animals have bones and teeth and shells. Why aren't they fossilized? So that means there's no time between layering layering the track and burying the creature that made them. So what's happening is they're fleeing from this flood, laying down the footprints, another layer buries that footprint, cements them in place, and eventually the flood overwhelms the dinosaur on higher levels. And that's why you find the creature uh, buried higher up than the footprints. It's the way the flood would have eventually overcome the dinosaurs and other creatures after they tried their best to flee from them. Now, another thing that's been interestingly found in the dinosaurs is soft tissue and blood vessels. I mean, it's very rare, but inside, say, a T-Rex bone, a Triceratops horn, and other creatures, they've actually found blood vessels and blood cells and other soft tissues, but also, I mean, um, proteins from animals and even some DNA from a dinosaur has been found. Even intact cells have been found. And the discoverer is Dr. Mary Schweitzer, who was originally from Montana. Now she's in North Carolina. And she was interviewed on 60 Minutes. So see what she says. A mistake. Mary put some fragments of the bone in acid to dissolve away the outermost layer of mineral. But the acid worked too fast, and all the mineral dissolved away. Being a fossil, there should have been nothing left. But there was, and it was elastic, like living tissue. This is the piece. (gasps) No. She showed us video she took under the microscope. That's really what happened? Yes. That's the dinosaur bone? Without mineral now. That's what was left. It looked like the soft tissue she would have expected to find if it had been modern bone. This was impossible. This bone was 68 million years old. So you see this and you think, what? You say, I didn't you want to say, tell anybody. <laughs> You'd be ridiculed, yes. right? And so I, I said to my technician, okay, do it again. I don't believe it. And yet, in sample after sample, they were there. Things that look suspiciously like flexible, transparent blood vessels. She finally mustered the courage to tell Jack. She said she dissolved the bone away and there were blood vessels. And, you know, I was like shocked. I mean, how could that be? How could that be? That's right. The things Mary was finding inside dinosaur bones look at that blood vessels and even what seemed to be intact cells pose a radical challenge to the existing rules of science that organic material can't possibly survive even a million years, let alone 68 million. Now, you see the bias here, though, right? Because she's admitting the actual laws of science. You know, real science says not even a million years old, but she wants to cling to the belief system of 68 million years. I mean, I would rather go by the actual science. 
which actually helps corroborate God's word than the belief system that contradicts it. So it's actually not a case of science versus religion, unless you want to say the real science uh, confronts the religious belief of evolution and millions of years. Now, what other evidence can we say here? Um, a lot of them, even DNA in dinosaur bones is really quite interesting. But see, you see how what it, she's a very careful researcher, you see. Transparent blood vessel left behind. I didn't believe it until we'd done it 17 times. So she's a careful researcher because she didn't really want to believe it herself. But she uh, really, I think, has proven her case that she's found uh, soft tissues and dinosaur um, blood cells and everything like that. I mean, she claims she's got a way of preserving them, but it just doesn't work because there's a reaction involving iron, which is... It's called the Fenton reaction, but I'm a chemist by training myself, okay? See, the Fenton reaction is used to destroy organic stuff, okay? And see, if that had occurred, it would have destroyed certain chemicals that she says she has found, you see? So you can't have it both ways. You can't say this reaction preserved the blood vessels, uh, but it didn't destroy what it should have destroyed. So it means if, if these chemicals are intact, it means this phantom reaction could not have occurred because it would have destroyed those things. So, so her thing doesn't make sense from a chemical point of view. What makes sense is they're not as old as they think they, they, think they are. Okay, so how if dinosaurs were mostly buried during the flood, how could Job and other people have seen dinosaurs after the flood? Well, the answer is... Noah was told to take two of every kind of land vertebrate on the ark. Okay, and here's the ark. No, 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 not that one. That's horrible. That's it's a disgusting picture. Okay, now please never show kids this picture because if you do that, you're telling the kids the Bible's a fairy story, a book of myths. This is a ridiculous picture. This overgrown bathtub with a giraffe neck sticking out through the, the, the chimney, and of course they're all happy and smiling. Even the world's being destroyed. They're happy about it. Yeah, great. Okay. No, it's no reason. Listen, the Bible tells us how big the ark was. 300 cubits. Here is a cubit. A little bit of fingertip. You see, cubit is Latin for elbow. That's all that means. Um, if you have blood drawn, you go here, right? You've had that happen. I've had it happen, unfortunately. Uh, this is called the cubital fossa, okay, where you get your blood drawn. Okay, now cubit is this stuff here, this length here. Okay, mine is 19 inches. Let's take a conservative cubit of 18 inches. 300 cubits long. Uh, that's longer than a football field. That is long, okay. And it's also 50 cubits wide. That makes it 75 feet. Now, an interstate highway lane is 12 feet. So this would actually block six lanes of the interstate. Okay, that's how wide it is. And it's as high as a four-story building. You see, this is a huge vessel. And there's certainly ways you can explain this to kids using child-appropriate pictures, but you can still get the message across that this is massive. I mean, here's the kids for scale, people for scale, Noah and his wife for scale. It's a big vessel. And then you can work out how much, how many animals could have been, could have gone on that. It's actually not too difficult to do. Um, because you see, we, we, what do you call these, these horrible things on the road that block up all the lanes? Uh, the semi trailers, tractor trailers, you know, whatever. Okay, you get the idea. Okay, uh, it turns out that each one of these could carry 300 sheep weighing 125 pounds each, okay? But the ark could take 340 of these. And so if you were trying to, if Noah had a fleet of semi-trailers to load up the ark, uh, it would have been six wide and half a mile long. Bumper to bumper, okay. So you've got, uh, this is a huge vessel. 
The calculations aren't that difficult. My commentary talks, gives the calculations, but they're really not that difficult. It's simple mathema- uh, multiplication and division. And here's another uh, picture of it. You see how huge the ark was. But then you're told what sort of things went on it, okay. But the thing is, as I said, the fish didn't have to go on and neither did the insects. It was land vertebrates. Vertebrates are animals with backbone. So no congressman. Okay. <clears throat> now one thing to think about is uh, what, what are the kinds? You see, we have a lot of different names of things, but these are all the same kind. In fact, every cat seems to be of the single created kind because uh, these things can all interbreed with each other. And when you go into small and mid-sized cat, they, some of the leopard can do with the mid-sized cats, like the, the jaguar, the ocelot, and then, then another thing down the line, the bobcat. And eventually you can go down to the domestic pussy cat, and they're, they're, you can actually, they can have hybrid animals between them. So there's a chain from the tiger and lion down to the pussy cat. So it seems that all cats are varieties of the same created kind. You see, creationists do not believe in fixity of species. We believe that one kind doesn't change into another. But you define a kind because God said ten times in Genesis 1 that things reproduce after their kind. So kind is is defined by whether they can interbreed with each other. These things can all interbreed. Like this is called a liger. And in fact, ligers can have babies of their own. The female ones can have babies. Okay, so <clears throat> there are a few of them like that. This is called a karma, you know, camel and llama. So camels and llamas are part of one created kind. And then you've got the beefalo. So obviously the buffalo and the, and the ordinary cows and bulls are the same kind. Uh, zonkey, zebra and donkey. Zorse. Zebra and horse, okay? And you have the geek, you can guess what that means, right? Uh, pig and a boar, and you've got the pizzly, which is a polar bear and grizzly. If it go, see, if it's a male polar bear, it's a pizzly. If it's a male grizzly, it's a growler bear, okay? It's a, like, I mean, if it's, a, if it's a male tiger, female lion, it's a tigon. Okay, here's another one. Uh, the wolfen, which is a whale and a dolphin. And the wolfen has had babies of her own too. So even though they're called different species, even different genera, they're the same created kind if they can have babies with each other. So you have a lot of these uh, things happening here. Now, when you look at dinosaurs, I mean, we can't test their interbreeding. We haven't got any living ones to do it with. But it looks like, I think these things may well be one or two created kinds just to gain different varieties. I mean, if, if you found these things in the fossil record, how many species would you think there were? But these are the same species. They can actually interbreed. It has to be done artificially, but it can be done. But if you found only their bones, would you think they were the same creature? Probably not, right? And when it comes to dinosaurs, there may have been 50 dinosaur kinds, even though you have lots of different names. Another thing to think about with dinosaurs is that they were all um, hatched from eggs. They weren't big when they went on. I don't think. I mean, there's nothing to say that Noah had to take 
full grown ones on. In fact, God was the one who'd bring the animals to Noah. Noah didn't have to go and round them up, but God said the animals will come to you. He's going to make the animals come to Noah. You see, dinosaurs started off small, and no egg was bigger than a football. And also, when they look at growth rings on dinosaur bones, they find they went through a growth spurt. It's got a teenage-type growth spurt. And then all the dinosaurs they looked at had this growth pattern. So it means, would Noah have to take this creature here, 25, 30 tons, or take him on board when he's four years old? So a year later, he's ready to go through his growth spurt. And after he gets off the ark, then he gets really, really big. So Noah didn't have to have the full grown ones on. He had to have them on before their growth spurt. And how do you take care of them? Well, in fact, see, Dutch farmers have known how to take care of animals through the winter months. And with very low-maintenance, low-tech solutions, the pot stuff, all they did was pile straw up. And in fact, it's not too smelly because the straw seems to absorb all the moisture. And they keep on adding the straw. You see how much they had to add the straw. And the thing is, it only begins to, it only stinks when you have to wash it out at the end of winter, you see. But the ark was a one-off thing, okay? So here's a, a very low-tech way of doing it. And this is called the Krupp style, where you have a gutter in between for the waste products. And you, you've got plenty of rainwater to wash them away, okay? No, no problem there. And central filling stations, where you have a water um, to fill a trough, and maybe grain to come down and, and uh, fill a trough for them to eat and to drink from. So again, low-maintenance, low-technology, it could be done. So lots of different things uh, could be done to um, to preserve the dinosaurs on the ark. Okay, so what, what happened to them? I think humans hunted them. Yes, that's a big thing because you think of dragon legends around the world tend to end up with humans killing those dragons. So humans won. I mean, think about the whale. Whale was bigger than the dinosaur, had a bigger brain, so more intelligent. They had the home turf advantage. And yet humans with, with just wooden sailing ships, handheld harpoons, almost wiped them out in the 19th century. You think of Moby Dick, the great American novel. Okay, um, they usually beat the whale. Except for Captain Ahab who didn't, okay? But most of the time they did beat the whale. So I think humans could have beaten the dinosaurs. But the evolutionists don't know how dinosaurs uh, became extinct. Lots of different theories. You have this junkie theory where narcotic plants evolved. Okay, well, that's a very, very weird one, isn't it? Uh, so the, the, the plant eaters got stoned and the meat eaters had nothing to, to hunt for, okay? And here is the constipation theory. No, no, no low roughage plants evolved. They're like white bread, no nutritional value, okay? So, uh, and then you have the asteroid impact theory. The problem is, though, that these dinosaurs were supposed to have ruled the Earth for 170 million years. So why did they get wiped out by the meteorite but not the crocodile? or the frog, or the lizard. You see, the meteorites seem to wipe out the wrong things. These very powerful, successful creatures get wiped out, but these little things don't get wiped out. And here's an admission. Everyone has their own favorite mechanism. Uh, we don't know the facts. You can operate on your own intuition. And I'll just give you one of my favorite evolutionary theories is this one, uh, where the tobacco evolved. They all died of lung cancer. Okay. So what can we say about it? Just to summarize here, 
is that dinosaurs tell us about God's creativity, the different created kinds, the amazing engineering that go, went behind these creatures. And they tell us about the fall that I'll be talking about next session. And the fall of man is what brought death into the world. And in particular, God judged sin during the flood and they started all over again with the survivors on the ark. And obviously that's part of God's judgment on sin. God takes sin very seriously. If sin wasn't serious, why would Jesus go to the trouble of being crucified for our sin? And about God's providence, God provided the ark to preserve the, 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 the believing, the righteous men, only six, eight people on board the ark, plus the pairs of animals, seven pairs of the clean animals, one pair of the unclean. And then you can even say it tells us about the gospel because it's a sort of parallel to Christ, if you like, because Jesus now is the only way to be saved from God's eternal judgment on sin. So thank you very much for uh, listening to me. And just to mention a few of the things we have over here for the younger people, they might like a, a book on uh, called Exploring Dinosaurs of Mr. Hibb. That's a younger version. It's a sort of teenagers, uh, um, 10 and above, probably even adults will learn from that one. Uh, this one here, a very useful one uh, to explain how you use the Bible to explain dinosaurs. And I mentioned dinosaurs and, oopsie, not that one, dinosaurs and dragons. I mentioned before the, the coffee table book. Sorry, I lost everything. Um, This one here. And there's also a parallel book called Monumental Monsters, which is about things. You see, most things today seem to have giant counterparts in the fossil record. What an interesting comparison. Let's look at the things we have today. And let's, let's look at a fossil counterpart, which is much, much bigger. So it's really quite an interesting book called Monumental Monsters out there. So thank you very much for listening to me. And I hope to see you back here uh, at uh, 11 for my main uh, church talk that I, I give out why it matters and also uh, again why science real science actually supports what we see in God's word so thank you again thank you thank you alright we are going to have a, a break we will have our refreshment and bagel time you're all uh, invited and encouraged to uh, imbibe it's just out those doors in the uh, lobby and during that time uh, also visit the uh, the book table and we will gather back in here for Dr. Sarfati's uh, second talk at 11:15 so we have 25 minutes 11:15 enjoy